0: You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com.
1: Silence the eyes. Become the senses. Drive through from the fresh repugnance, thou whole, thou feeling creature. Live not for others, but affect thyself from thy enhanced interior, believing what thou carry, thy trillionic multitude of gra, vushas, and silences, you are heavier and dimmer than you knew, and more solid and full of pleasure.
2: God. God.
3: Hello, everyone. Peter Maravell is here. I hope this finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you to day two of a special celebration honoring the life and work of our dearly beloved Michael McClure. Our celebration encompasses three events, two on the West Coast and one on the East Coast. The East Coast tribute to Michael will happen next weekend on Sunday, May the 16th, and will be hosted by the Poetry Project. Yesterday, we celebrated the release of Michael's final collection of poetry titled Mule Kick Blues, published by City Lights Books. We had Ann Waldman, Eileen Miles, and Garrett Caples reading poems from the new book and discussing his work. Today, we bring together an all-star cast of his friends and admirers from the West Coast to offer tributes and readings from a wide span of his career. To get our program started, I'd like to welcome now the poetry editor at City Lights Books, a fine poet in his own right, and longtime friend of Michael's, Garrett Caples.
4: Thank you, Peter. We are going to uh, open with just a short uh, description of Michael. He needs no introduction, but we will give him an introduction for form's sake anyways. Michael McClure was born in Marysville, Kansas in 1932, and died in Oakland, California in 2020. He was a playwright, an essayist, a novelist, a performer, and most famously a poet. In 1955, he read as part of the Six Poets at Six Gallery reading in San Francisco, where Allen Ginsberg debuted Howl. And he would henceforth be considered a member of the San Francisco Renaissance and the Beat Generation. He appears in multiple Jack Kerouac novels under the name Pat McLear. He collaborated with many visual artists like Wallace Berman and Bruce Conner. He was the subject of documentaries, most famously an episode of Richard O. Moore's 1965 public TV series, USA Poetry in which he rose with the Lions at the San Francisco Zoo. That same year, he wrote and staged the controversial play, The Beard, and he would go on to win two Obie Awards for his off-Broadway plays. He read to tens of thousands of people at the Human Being in Golden Gate Park in 1967, and he would associate and collaborate with many musicians, including The Grateful Dead, Jim Morrison, Ray Manzarek, Terry Riley, and Janis Joplin, for whom he co-wrote the famous song Mercedes Benz. He appeared in films like Peter Fonda's The Hired Hand and Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz. He also taught for many years at California College of Arts and Crafts. Wrote many books of poetry that were published by such presses as Jargon, Auerhahn, Grove, Black Sparrow, New Directions, and Penguin. Among his most famous works are For the Death of a Hundred Whales, Peyote Poem, Poisoned Wheat, and the book-length classic, *Doc Brown. Michael's association with City Lights goes as far back as 1961, when, with David Meltzer and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, he edited the Journal for Protection of All Beings. In 1963, we published his book, Meat Science Essays. and In 1964, we distributed his self-published book of beast language poems, Ghost Hunters, which we republished in 2013. In 2016, we published his book, Mephisto's and Other Poems. Yesterday, we launched the final book of poems that he lived to prepare, New Blues. Today, we've invited some of Michael's friends' and admirers to read some of his work, and reflect on his life. Our first speaker is the poet Joanna McClure. She's the author of numerous collections of poetry, including Winter Solstice, Wolf Eyes, Hard Edge, and Catching the Light: The Collected Poems. And she was married to Michael McClure for many years. Please join me in welcoming Joanna McClure.
5: Thank you. I was going to begin with a short description of some of the things that I thought people in the audience who know him as a poet might not be aware of, and you've covered a lot of them, but. He was a genius, and his genius showed in other ways besides his poetry. For one thing, he became a fine teacher, besides being a good writer of books and essays and uh, many different kinds of plays. His book, The Mad Cub, was a book about his wild days in Kansas before he came to Arizona where I met him. And... uh, as well as covering some of our early married life. He wrote Free Willing Frank, Secretary of the Angels, about our friend Frank. He wrote meat science essays. He wrote the funniest and most delightful plays. And many of them are collected under gargoyle cartoons. And they were performed by the early magic theater under John Lyon's direction. And as you know, he's a notorious play the Beard Wananobi in New York. His longest running cartoon was Minnie Mouse and the Tap Dancing Buddhas, which was a real favorite with the Zen Center here. And after the dust of our separation settled, I have been grateful for Amy's presence in his life and her care for the grandchildren. He has also had the pleasure of living. With Amy, his artist wife, under the trees, which he loved. When I first met Michael, I was 19 and married. I had trouble knowing what to say about those 36 years between, so I've decided instead to read you a few of the poems I wrote for or about him during those years. First, I want to read you the, the poem with which he wooed and won me. I am no vaquero, though I fire my gun at smoother hide than film. I'm a man or boy with jingle at my heel and silver at my lip. My bribes are of the eye and hand, the hotter song and gunsmoke of the heart. I'm a man or boy with breath and brain and blood that twitch the trigger mind and burn my eyes for you. Then my poems. First one begins never again. I want to grow daisies and do all my shopping at iMAGNUS. I want Mike to be rich and me a movie star. I want to be autonomous and love people and things, but never fall in love again. This year. This year is one of glamor and honing of fine instincts. Mike and I react surely quickly. The pain remains, but the dealings are sure. We create a wedge to move the universe. Our instruments are laughter, rage, beauty, ambition. Beginning to say goodbye. I study the shapes of new windows, sort furniture, Lean on the comfort of known objects in my life. Look sadly at corners created with love one by one over the past quarter century. Flown so quickly and passionately. Leaving these fond traces in each special space. I say goodbye and plan braiding the two together as I gather myself with fear and hope for the next step. Michael, it's hard to give you up. I have for two months now, but in my dreams for two nights now, we keep making new homes together. New Year's appointment. Mickey and Minnie Mouse sing in eternity. The chorus echoes from waves of my memory. Life swells under me suddenly as I get carried up Get to look out instead of under a welcome swing for the new year. Pinioned I sit held there pinioned by a vision, a voice. Michael reads twisting my senses heart, mind vibrate to... Strange, complex, whispered universe whirls. Breathing falls back. The craft is overpowering. Him, striding, dark, smiling intensity paces the stage, catches words between his teeth, throws light darts at camera slit holding his secret taut within, a net around the navel, lines shooting out from the center or forces that spiral out from a third eye, somewhere above and between two dark eye holes. For Michael. Now, all those men later, it's you I think of here on the deck. The sound of waterfalls as your words fell and caught me. The lines began cousin to the mold and mold. I was captured. Michael, here I am again, sipping old scotch, listening to Cinco de Mayo, smoking cigarettes and thinking, What a wonderful, glorious, hard, interesting, playful, conflicted life of suffering and love we shared. You died and I
3: miss you. That's it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here tonight. Next up is the poet and educator, C.A. Conrad. C.A. is the author of numerous books. They include Deviant Propulsion, The Book of Frank, Eco Deviants, Somatics for the Future Wilderness, as well as many others. They have a book coming out from Wave Books in the fall of 2021 titled Amanda
6: Paradise. C.A., welcome. Thank you, Joanna, that was beautiful. Very happy to be here. I'm excited you know, about celebrating this great poet This is somebody who I got to see, Michael McClure, a few times when I was younger. But then the last most recent time was a few years ago at the Cascadia Poetry Festival that my friend Paul Nelson invited me to, who's here. And that was in Tacoma, Washington. And it was specifically because we were also celebrating, there was a tribute to Richard Brodigan during that festival. And I was on a panel to talk about a book and just before I went up, Michael McClure asked, well, what are you going to talk about? And I said, I'm going to talk about the book, The Tokyo Montana Express. And he was very excited. But he also was surprised, like, really, you're going to talk about that? You know what I mean? Like, nobody talks about that book. And I said, I oh, I just love just it. it. It's brilliant. And I get, and then later on that evening, I said, well, you know, what's your favorite piece of this book? And he told me, and he said that it is like the gem of the collection and I agree. And I'm, I'm gonna read that for you now. So this is Michael McClure's favorite piece from Richard Brodigan's, the Tokyo Montana Express, Umbrellas. I have never been able to understand umbrellas because I don't care if I get wet. Umbrellas have always been a mystery to me because I can't understand why they appear just before it starts to rain. The rest of the time they're vacant from the landscape as if they never existed. Maybe the umbrellas live by themselves in little apartments under Tokyo. Do the umbrellas know that it is going to rain? Because I know that people don't know. The weatherman says, that it will rain tomorrow, but it doesn't. And you don't see a single goddamn umbrella. Then the weatherman says that it will be a sunshiny day and suddenly there are umbrellas everywhere you look. And a few moments later, it starts raining like hell. Who are these umbrellas? (laughs) I'm now I'm gonna read one poem by Michael McClure that I absolutely love. It's from his masterpiece, Hymn to St. Giron. And it is this incredible poem. And this is where that masterpiece poem, Peyote is from, right, in this collection. But the mystery of the hunt. It's the mystery of the hunt that intrigues me, that drives us like lemmings, but cautiously. Their search for a bright square cloud, the scent of lemon verbena, or to learn rules from the game the sea otters play in the surf. It is these small things and the secret behind them that fill the heart, the pattern, the spirit, the fiery demon that link them together and pull their freedom into our senses. The smell of a shrub, a cloud, the action of animals, the rising, the exuberance, when the mystery is unveiled. It is these small things that when brought into vision, become an inferno. Thank you.
3: you. I'm gonna reclaim myself as host here. Thank you so much, CA, that was wonderful. Our next guest is Forrest Gander Forrest is a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, translator, essayist, and novelist. He is the author of numerous collections of poetry, chapbooks, and novels. Uh, His most recent book was published by New Directions and is called Twice Alive. He'll be appearing in an event later in the week on May the 13th, sponsored by Litquake and City Lights. We're really pleased and happy to have him here with us. Welcome, Forrest.
7: Thank you. so good to be in this company and share this thinking about Michael. The last time I saw him, he was in Bellinas. It was the uh, memorial for Joanne Kiger. And there was a faint glow that emanated from him as he walked around the room like a bodhisattva. I'm going to read uh, a couple poems from, uh, first from Mysteriosos, sort of biographical poem from the section called Dear Being. Now I understand the sexual addiction of my young manhood was a crucifixion, glittering and lovely as an ostrich boa and smashed mirrors seen on acid. Now I am an old man with a handsome face. And after the bloody movie full of guns and stabbings and helicopters, I stop at the photo booth and in the mirror Is a dog with jowls a silver fox an eagle in the whirlpool here's the strip of four photos a sincere man with white hair and eyebrows eyes almost inside out staring from a black armani collar then the same man still in front of scarlet drapes with his eyes looking up into science fiction in his forehead now his head rests dazed against the side of the booth. In the last photo, I am fully alert, just as I always am, a suicidal child in love with experience, risking all to be only with you as the dragon world with its hundred eyes passes. And I still long to be Shelley. Michael wrote a lot of beautiful love poems for two people who are participating in this in this memorial reading for him and i want to thank them for eliciting those poems from him because they've meant a lot to me mind means nothing but consciousness a rock has it and a toadstool and a field of particles in a complex protein as it loops tying a knot my mouth With your nipple in it is the rising of thought, as are the apples that rot. In the drawer, inspiring Schiller. Gold will not speak of lead. Lead will sing of the highest while dimmed eyes count pearls. Numb fingers take the qualities of jewels that they shake from the worn, greasy pouch. It's an opera with living beings. Smaller than viruses playing the tympani sizeless storms of emotion and crisis, as rich as the smell of a pale purple rose, go back into the nose and spread into branches inside my ears and burn my eyes with sudden feelings of love for you. That wonderful ear of his that you hear in in that poem. And this one's for Robert Creeley. Soft toes curl on the floor primate style with gleam of varnished wood beneath them. The garden does not sleep at night. Depths of darkness intricately model themselves in the smell of hollyhocks and jasmine. The flash bulb snaps off and on again and again and again right in my face. Four pictures are shot and there are spots in front of my eyes. Now I am an old man with freckles on my high forehead. Almost forgotten is the way the wolf moves on entering a restaurant. Now there is no pretense, just the bright oranges, browns, blacks, and blues of the photos. The lilt of coyness hide the predator's intent sneer. Long white hair is the head of an eagle. There is the faintest bruise of wisdom in the bags under my silver ringed dark irises. That's good, thank you. Thank you so much, Forrest. That
3: was beautiful. I'm gonna see now if I can unmute Margaret Randall, who is our next guest, lifelong activist, poet, educator, and photographer. She is a prolific writer, having authored numerous collections of poetry, which include Sandino's Daughters, their backs to the sea. Hello, Margaret.
8: I just want to say that I'm, I'm really happy to be here uh, to remember Michael McClure. I'm grateful to City Lights for including me in this tribute. And um, Michael's poetry informed our generation and it's going to continue to do so for generations into the future. Michael and I actually only met once in person at the Beat and Beyond event in New York City, which took place in the the summer of 2016. Aside from hearing him read his own work there, I remember his taking part in a recreation of the famous six gallery reading. He was the only participant uh, still living at that time who'd read at the original event, which was the first time Allen Ginsberg's Howl was heard in public. This time though, instead of playing himself, Michael played Philip Lamantia, which was significant for me because it was at Lamantia's Mexico City apartment that I was introduced to the exciting poetry scene then unfolding in Mexico City at that time, at the beginning of the 60s. So when Sergio Mondragon and I created our bilingual literary quarterly, El Cuaderno Plumado, Michael was one of the, the first U.S. poets to send us poems. We published two of those poems in our issue number three, uh, appearing in July of 1962. This is the, the issue of the magazine. And I'd like to just read, I'll read those two poems, of course. But first, I'd like to read the very brief Uh, editor's note from that issue. Each issue had a tiny editor's note, just a paragraph. And I'd like to read this because it gives a sense of what our concerns were back then in, in July of 1962. The editor's note reads, mountains, trees, windows, great buildings, young children, landscapes and modern science, are all looked upon openly and without the preconceived malice of suspicion. It is necessary that creative expression of a man's own time be viewed in the same way. Our age, Cuba, Africa, chessmen, a civil disobedience, abstract expressionism, electronic music, a million babies born every day, Compresses the history we wake to a madness which has fractured the light in which we move. The answers we seek hide behind machinery, dogma, old hates, and social functionalism. The plumed horn will continue on the premise that beyond these categories, we are united by a fraternity called art. So that was some of the, the language we used back then, not very inclusive, but chessmen, the A-bomb, a time we can hardly remember anymore. So um, the first poem I'm going to read by Michael is called Dear Jane. The world is full of elves with dark, slashed, smiling features on their shield-shaped heads, black gloomy brows, bright eyes, smiling beaks with antler wings and rose thorn paws on pink pad feet and furry breasts and salmon's tail. They sleep in nacreous vases of imagination and flit in dawn fogs and firelight chasms and sunny leaves. And then the other poem is called Drunk Writing. Death, love, breast, the universe is a new born babe. Oh, dark stillness, it is night. I say fuck death into the universe of lilies and fuchsias. I am here and you are gone. There is venom on your breath and I am dead in the late spring of death. Look up into the banks of blossoms. We love life and I cannot remember you. You are like lilies, an elf giant of the absurd. Forgive how I hate to speak without vision. You are real batwing that hovers over an absent memory. You are calm lamb browsing in the muscles of the day. How I hate flowers and forget the muscatel is all I have. Remember cold moments in vagary, kiss, snow, spark. Forget size and judgments. Fuck death. A black cricket is crawling under the drooping fuchsias. I hate flowers. Jesus, how I hate them. You, for your pride, let me go home to the stars. I am waiting for November. Lovely, lovely maiden. Imagine how I hate flowers. I want only warm bodies. I hate life that doesn't make heat. I shall ride into perfection with the smile of a sinner. So I think that poem was written in 1960. And again, this was the magazine. So in tribute to Michael and all he's given us. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you so much, Margaret Randall. Michael was Part of this remarkable scene in the 50s and 60s that brought together such artists and writers and actors and filmmakers, such as Wallace Berman, Bruce Connor, Russ Tamblin, and then many others who were involved in the art scene that kind of intersected with the beats. Uh, one of those who played a crucial role in that scene, as well as in mid-century art in general, is the award-winning artist George Herms. He had a lifelong friendship with Michael and their adventures they have George Herms with us here today. I'm going to preface his appearance by showing a video first that he actually suggested we show today. So if you'll bear with me, I will get that ready
1: for us. Guard thy in the newt ease. Bimi me grahor im thee thy lips and hair Our stunning field bior eo ma'an tears Grew on the green block trees Our tall and brooding in the dark gray-pink wet mist of night all his flashes of silver upon damp black by scrolled in the thee 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 mak porir thanus imraqt ga Ra, mean, luvi. And all physicality is poesy to demanding flesh. Ring tailed cat. Close Arcturus. Heavenly visions of gentle rats with pink noses. I love to think of the red-purple rose in the darkness, cool by the night. We are served by machines making satins of sounds. Each blot of sound is a bud or a star. Body eats bouquets of the ears' vista gaa booty, ears nose eyes deem thou no Na speak noise garou me dat rou syrch The machines are too dull when we are lion poems that move and breathe, when we grow. Andri, mytath, sharu, sridano deemed as one ethus ro.
3: George, can you hear me? George Herms. Well, he was here a moment ago. Maybe we will come back to George in a few moments. So next up, our next guest's influence on the world of American letters has been substantial. Noted for his innovations in the fields of ethnopoetics and performance poetry, his friendship with Michael McClure spans the decades from their mutual interest in everything from Dada through the indigenous traditions of the sacred substances, they would cross over repeatedly into each other's lives. It is such a great honor to have with us, poet, translator, and anthologist, Jerome Rothenberg. I'll read a piece on uh,
9: Michael that I wrote a few years ago and addressed to him. And it was then in the present tense and now a large part of it is in the past tense. And I'll start it uh, uses an epigraph, a sentence of his that Forrest Gander quoted earlier in this session. And I still long to be Shelley. Michael McCall and I first came together when he helped me to see in 1968 or 1969, the implications of what I had worked out on my own in Technicians of the Sacred. I had for years before been gathering materials and texts Uh, that involved specifically outcroppings of poetry in areas and cultures outside the accepted literary mainstreams. Michael, and from others like Gary Snyder, I became aware of how many shared interests that involved and of how many transformations had already taken place beyond the page, so to speak. I knew Michael McClure's poetry before that and inserted poems of his into technicians of the sacred Uh, The ghost tantras that he wrote in beast language, as parallels to kindred ancient works from Aboriginal and Mantric sources, and to the sound poems as well of early modernists like Hugo Ball and Kurt Schütters. His work throughout was electrifying to those of us watching with great joy in the discovery, the poetry that was arising then among our own contemporaries. The beat surface which he, like others, scratched, was an important part of this, but there were other surfaces and other depths as well. In Michael's case, there was from the beginning a mix of highly charged language, visceral, sexual, what he would later call mammalian, with an often overriding gentleness of tone and gesture. In the voice of those poems, I heard the voice of someone really speaking, but speaking in, what should we say? a bard's voice with a touch, a memory of Blake and Shelley, poets who had moved him in the past. His sense of voice and body, but really body mind as one, led him into an amazing series of theatrical works like the often acclaimed and often banned The Beard and on its musical side to interactions with the likes of Bob Dylan and The Doors and to his later collaborations with keyboardist Raymond Zarek. Now, all of this might mask, as it too often does with others, the full sweep of Michael's work. He was both a latter-day romantic, in the best sense, and a sharer in an experimental modernism that has produced our greatest poetry worldwide over the last hundred and more years. His grasp of poetry and art, as well, went back, like mine, the high school days, as to discoveries, surrealists, and dadaists who came before him, but also to the work of contemporaries who shared with him a front place in the he- heyday of the San Francisco Renaissance. And beyond the poetry as such, he was a devoted student of a range of knowledge in both the arts and sciences, the biological and anthropological in particular, which fed the poetry in turn and brought about a genuine and very unique lyricism of bio meat science, as he called it, and the finest celebration that I know of a universe of living
1: forms.
9: The recognition of this central aspect of his work has nowhere been better explained than by Francis Crick, my fellow San Diegan and a long-time admirer of McClure's, who said about him, what appeals to me most about Michael's poems is the fury and the imagery of them. I love the vividness of his reactions and the very personal turns and swirls of the lines. The worlds in which I myself live, the private world of personal reactions, the biological world, animals and plants and even bacteria chase each other through the poems, the world of the atom and the molecule, the stars and the galaxies are all there. And in between, above and below, stands man, the howling mammal contrived out of meat by chance and necessity. If I were a poet, I would write like Michael McClure, if only I had his talent. As a poet myself, I can't go quite that far, though I would have been pleased to be the one who proclaimed I am a mammal patriot, or with a voice akin to Blake and Dickinson, and in a beautifully shaped series of elegantly scented lines to top it off. How sweet to be a rose by candlelight or a worm by full moon. See the hopping flight a cricket makes. Nature loves the absence of mistakes. Or best of all, to be the poet who spoke to and through the raging beast and said, Go,
1: go,
2: go, go, go,
9: not sugar, but be love, looking for sugar. CRO, CRO, grow And the following is my own tribute to him, written as our century, the 20th, was slowly fading out. Prolegometer to a Poetics for Michael McClure poet man walks between dreams he is alive he is breathing freely through a soft tube like a hookah ashes fall around him as he walks singing above them oh how green the sun is where it marks the ocean feathers drift atop the hills down which the poet man keeps walking walking ahead step ahead of what he fears of what he loves why has the poet failed us why have we waited waited for the word to come again why did we remember what the name means only to now forget it if the poet's name is god how dark the day is how heavy the burden is he carries with him all poets are jews said Setaeva. the god of the jews is jewish said a jew It was white around him and his voice was heavy, like a poet's voice in winter, old and heavy, crackling, remembering frozen oceans in a summer climb. How contrary he felt, how harsh the suffering was in him. Let it go, the poet is dreaming about a poet and he calls out. Soon he will have forgotten who he is. Speak to the poet's mother, she is dead now. So many years ago she left her father's climb His father too. The tale of wandering is still untold, untrue. The tale of who you are, the tale of where the poem can take us, of where it stops and where the voice stops. The poem is an argument with death. The poem is priceless. Those who are brought into the poem can never leave it. In a silver tux, the poet in the poem by Lorca walks down the hall to greet the poet's bride. The poet sees her breasts shine in the mirror. Apples as white as boobs says Lorca. He has fed the milk of paradise, the dream of every poet man of every poet bride. The band plays up. The day unstops and rushes out to greet another night. Is the black poet black? And is the creation of his hands and throat a black creation? Yes, says the poet man who wears three rings. The poet man who seeks the precious light passes the day beside a broken door no one can enter. Hold it shut, the god cries and the Jew rolls over in his endless sleep. Gods like little wheels glide past him down the mountain road where cats live in a cemetery guarded by his father's star. A poet and a bride entangled in the grass. His hands are black, his eyes the whitest white and rimmed with scarlet. Hear the drumbeat heart. The blacks have landed on the Western shore. The long lost past of poetry revives. Our fingers fail us. Then tear them off, the poet cries. Not for the first time. The dead are too often seen filling our streets. Who hasn't seen them? A tremor across the lower body always the image of a horse's head and sand flies, a woman's breath and honey, she in whose mouth the murderer's stuffed gravel who will no longer speak. The poet is the only witness to that death, writes every line as if the only witness. As they say, may his poetry live on and may his memory be a blessing for us all.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Jerome Rothenberg. That was really quite beautiful. It's such an honor to have you with us today. Michael's involvement with the music scene is of course well-documented. His friendship with Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, his collaborations with Ray Manzarek and others helped him to experiment with merging text with music. Uh, One of Michael's musical collaborators was the master guitarist, Henry Kaiser. Uh, He has prepared a special video tribute to Michael that I would like to show now.
0: I'd like to do a poem by Michael McClure called The Black Notebook. And uh, I played with Michael many years ago, did some performances with him, backing him up on guitar. I'd like to do this first as an instrumental. I'll use the short poem for a score, and then uh, I'll do it with the words. Okay, here we go. Black Notebook for Jack Kerouac. notebook for Jack Kerouac. Last year, she was a kitten in the spring, now a cat. Not snow, but a plum petal falling right before the thunder starts. A plum petal flies toward the hummingbird at the ivy.
3: Next up is Jane McClure. She is the daughter of Michael and Joanna McClure, and as a child, appeared in works by Philip Lamantia, Jess, and Michael himself under the nickname Bubas. She is a doctor in Alaska, bringing vital healthcare to remote, isolated communities throughout the state.
10: Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. So I'm glad to be here, and I don't have poetry or artwork art to contribute, but I can contribute to a daughter's perspective, give you an idea of what it was like, just little bits and pieces, what it was like to grow up with him. It was a mixed blessing to be an only child and the daughter of a handsome, brilliant, creative, and mercurial man. It wasn't a normal upbringing, but a surprisingly nuclear family filled with love, strong work ethics, high expectations, teaching, pain, routine and unorthodox opinions and values, it was never dull. There was amazing culture around me. I was surrounded by writers, musicians, drug addicts, movie stars, Hells Angels, and scientists. I did and I did not appreciate just how tremendous my breadth of experience and exposure was at the time. Exposure to the revolutionizing and countercultural cultural change I was witnessing and participating in as well without even realizing it. Despite large doses of some rough and raw realities around me, I grew up both worldly and naive. I was able to remain naive, sheltered by my father's protective mantle. Our friends and acquaintances treated me kindly. Many were chivalrous and gentlemanly Most were very respectful of my youth, and I always felt very safe, even when hanging out with the Hells Angels. I had no religious upbringing or exposure, but my father did insist that I learn the names of flowers, trees, and birds. Instead of religion, I was expected to learn as much about nature and science as he could teach me. Challenging my intellect was important to my father. When I was around seven or eight, he decided Summer vacation should not be all wild street play. He would drag me away from my friends for an hour a day to give me organized lessons about the life cycle of earthworms and had me memorize poems, read aloud, and he paid me to read books. He also loved watching Star Trek, The Addams Family, and My Favorite Martian with me on TV. He took me on park walks where we fed ducks and geese, and we visited with old and disabled people as we we met on our adventures. My father had a delightful, dry sense of humor. He seriously had me practice walking around like a duck and then changing to a proper gait in a Simon Says manner. He really thought this was gonna improve my posture. He had me give speeches in Donald Duck, which I could always do better than he could, And he paid me a quarter to swear foully nonstop to impress company. As I got older, my father's lessons became more rigorous. He had me learn different forms of poetry, including haiku, sonnets, iambic pentameter. He assigned me serious writing exercises, and he had me read, memorize, and recite Chaucer in Middle English. We practiced and I performed the Jabberwocky with him on many occasions. My father drank and did drugs. He was moody and scary and bad tempered. And he was funny, charming and loving. Living with him was a challenge and definitely never dull. Have I said never dull in my life? My father was not really the free spirit he appeared to be. He was a hard-working and a disciplined writer He spent at least four hours a day in his office with his typewriter and notebooks. He made himself write every day. He was also an excellent teacher. He expected a lot from himself as well as others, including me and the college students that he taught. When I was in high school, he insisted that I study two hours a day, even if I said I had no homework. He felt there was always some work to be done, and I thought he was torturing me. I admired my father and always wanted to know more about everything than he did. I struggled to keep up with his intellect. As I got older, we bantered and continuously matched wits and teased each other as I slowly outgrew him. Being a daughter with a thick hide, a rebellious spirit and a resistance to being impressed, I found that I both loved and hated my father. I did not idolize him. I did, however, respect him and felt innately competitive with him, which has been a driving force in my life. Living with my father, I learned to survive and manage him. And I learned not to take shit from anyone, including him. By my teen years, my father had created a ring of fire around me. He let suitors and boyfriends know that I had a protective father that would not tolerate anyone hurting me. It was also very clear to them and to me that no one was ever going to be good enough for me. I loved going to events alone with my handsome father and I was secretly tickled when people suspected me of being his young date. In college, when I let my father know that I wanted to pursue medicine, he told me that becoming a doctor would ruin my creativity. But in reality, I think it hurt him to see me having so much difficulty getting into medical school. He was intensely proud of me being a physician, but he continued to tease me mercilessly, as he always had, about being a doctor. He was furious when I left the Bay Area to go to work in Bush, Alaska. It was not until the last decade of his life that he relaxed and let go of his condescending and intolerant opinion about the lack of culture and intellectual stimulation in my Alaskan community. Finally, as he let go of his anger about my desertion of him and the things he loved, he grew to embrace and love the work and life we had made here. His acquired appreciation of my husband and me and what we have done in Alaska has enhanced my own appreciation of this life. I'm pleased that my father got to visit my husband and me before his stroke and share some of our Alaska experience. And my father not only forgave my husband for taking me away, but a few years ago, he wrote a poem for him. Bill got tired of my father asking me what he wanted for his birthday. So he suggested I asked my father to write a poem for him. We both thought that would be the end of the issue. We, <laughs> we didn't hear anything more for a long time. And then we got word through Amy that he was working on a poem and then it was done. It was a very different kind of poem for my father to write an epic tale filled with insight, forgiveness, acceptance of life, changing, and with love. And I, I asked my husband to read this poem that my father wrote for him because I can't make it through without crying.
11: <laughs> and, and I'm a little concerned that I won't either. So it's uh, for Bill, state meant, the handsome bearded savant, swift as the flight of a falcon races over the dunes in full moonlight his beloved lies by him on the silken swath back of his breathless camel he smiles grimly and triumphantly the sheik will pursue him on discovering the abduction of his fearless and precious daughter the savant scoops up the bride to be on his motorcycle and carries her into a vision of medicine. Soon a boy child is born to them, then another boy child, and the new family moves away to bring health to the world. Eventually, sullenly, the sheik forgives the handsome savant. I see now you are the patriarch of your family. In your home, I understand this is the beginning of my ongoing family and that I am richer. Thank you for your labors and serious wisdom. You have created wealth and goodness and a great new love of nature for our family. Michael. And you can see it. It looks different. Oh, can you see it? It looks very different than his other poems. It's it's not framed like he would normally do it or phrased. Anyway.
10: So basically... Since my father's death and through the eyes of others including all of you and people who have published memorials and and written about him. I've learned to appreciate and respect my father even more. And I'm reminded just how much he influenced and shaped me as well as a community in the world around him. So thank you for being there and letting me share this with you.
3: Thank you both. This really adds such a deep dimension to the proceedings today. I really appreciate you both being with us. So next up is a poet of Sukomash descent from Port Madison in Washington State. He writes about art, literature, and film, and is the author of several books and pamphlets of poetry, some of which have been included in various magazines and anthologies. City Lights had the honor of publishing his collection, Stranger in Town. He's also been published by Ugly Duckling Press, Wave Books, and others. He is an extraordinary poet and it's really such a pleasure to have him here with us. Please welcome Cedar Seagull.
12: Oh, hi, thank you so much, Peter. And uh, I'm just so thrilled to be included uh, among these artists and poets and Michael's family. Thank you, Jane and Bill. I just thought that piece was so moving, Uh, incredible. Thank you. I met, Michael, in 2016, I gave a reading with Joanne Kiger at Moe's and uh, Michael attended. And afterward, oh, I remember when I, after every poem I read, he clapped wildly, which if you live in the Bay Area, that like, that might've been the first time that's ever happened. Um, We hung out and uh, I started hanging out with him. Uh, We read some poems together. And he was just very generous with me. And when I started putting together this book for Joanne Kiger, um, titled There You Are, Interviews, Journals, and Ephemera, I used a poem of Michael's in here. Um, It's dated 2003, uh, Fall Equinox for Joanne and Donald. Dear Crown. Not understanding, not consciousness, just a diamond or a bronze lightning bolt nestled in the center of a red rose. Balanced on the fine tip of not knowing while the emptiness of the jewel roars out waves of an aura making mountains with houses and trees. A young buck in his first mossy antlers runs in the white fire of the headlights through the darkness ahead of the car. I'll bow to that. And another poem for a great mutual friend of ours who was part of the notorious Wichita Vortex Sutra, Joko Dave Hazelwood, who was a great publisher of Our Han Books, also a Zen priest, an occasional translator of Baudelaire and just a great friend of mine and Michael's. So when we found out we had Dave in common It was all that uh, more relaxed between us. And this is from Persian Pony, one of his great later books. Joko Dave Hazelwood. Somewhere a plum is ripe, lifting in thunderous rain through black roots. Somewhere we all die in our living, from earlobes to toes in the earth, like stars and mitochondria with no future or past to present and I got to thinking Michael's one of those poets who's so much of his most beautiful poetry is buried in the plays you know he's like Shakespeare in this way and Ben Johnson, Amiri Baraka, Kenneth Koch and so I wanted to read a little bit from this beautiful book The Mammals his early plays and just read People basically speak in poems in his plays. And I wanted to read a little from The Blossom or Billy the Kid. And there's a note. uh, First performed in a private theater club in New York City, summer in 1963. Put on by Diane DePrima and Alan Marlowe and sets by George Herms. Okay. So this is the kid speaking, just a little snippet. Beyond love, sweetness, death, past touch. This is the next to final escape, the last real permanency. The gleam of my eyes, this instant will last forever. I will not remember you. I am a sculpture, immortal. You are made of dust. I do not reflect light, but cast light. You will not live as I live. I have entered into all matter. I am walked through. I have spread to become, no, divided. I have split to each act I shall make. I look down the vast tall of perfect immobile sights. I cannot see, I am. I see the turning of behemoth figures in coldness, the lasting death of huge bodies. And I'm going to end with a poem I wrote for Michael. And this is from my book, Royals. And I got to read this to Michael at his home. And I remember when I read it to him, the first thing he said was, thank you. And Michael always knew how to say thank you so beautifully. Um, This is called Medallion. How well I know that flowing spring in black of night alone and chosen, left to form this one-off wilted dispatch, written for the feast, long held in our room below language. Color forms a pantomime for the maze, descent in green, a syndicate is stranded, face out, all stars, all charges, to unfold out from torment, to recognition, a spiral cut to the headlands. Reading as ancient, no future. The door swung till the roots ripped, waiting on the drift and blindingly restored works. Man himself a light, the sheet is lifted on voices, those securing their fix. Oh, hanging them back on doors that groan, how swept apart too soon. The higher he ascends, the darker the wood, the grain in the line senses addition emerging at once as it all begins to end, all lies shot back to the start, the most elusive shot, frozen bloodied, one of one. On that happy night in secret, no one saw me through the dark, a light projection, pink moon on black barn door, a jar of light grown large behind three slats, plastic overlay of words, a fluid mind, no camera meaning obstruction, stained cardboard on strings, slide the doors to be oblivious to joining in music, pulling open the mirrors to dark bars where I could see down upon a man's skull. I built my own circuitry, sounds and flow insisted upon my own armory. A hall of humans, those poets I stop to remember in flooded motion. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Cedar. That was really quite beautiful. We wanted to give you all a taste of Michael's work from Michael himself. This video clip comes from Michael's friend, Colin Still, an optic nerve. They're makers of the documentary on Michael called Abstract Alchemist of the Flesh. Colin also took the uh, photograph of Michael that appears on Mule Kick Blues, his uh, final book. So please check out Colin's extraordinary work with Michael on the uh, YouTube channel at Optic Nerve. So this is Michael reading poem beginning with a line from Diane De Prima.
1: The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. The only love that shatters Is the love of despondence and horror. The only honor that shines is the one that smashes the lust for duty. Any crime that diminishes the soul is not credible, such as the foulness of stuffing one's gut with the junk of greasy meat and consumerist propaganda of filling one's nose and veins with drugs, of cutting the beaks from chickens and then loading them with poisons and light and madness, and eating their eggs and spirits. Body and spirit are all one thing. It is just one war, and the big bomb has already exploded. There's time to look your love in the eyes and say, no more. In my insides, I am a man or woman. I am heart and lung and meat and vein and breath going back through a deep phylogeny. I am a deep, old history made new for the first time in the smiling guise of the universe that whispers with my breathed air and my soft toes. Why, then, Am I handed this garbage, these lies that are told over and over and grow tighter and tighter and prey on my health? Why am I diminished and portrayed as a fool and told to buy and consume till I am only a fool? How come I am a tool of this explosion, a tool of tools in the midst of this slow motion blow up? Stand up. Stand up, get off your back, and turn off the box with the moving pictures. Go for a walk in the woods or on the plains. Speak to a cliff. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. The only honor that shines is the one that smashes the lust for duty. It is your duty to absorb the social propaganda and become crazed with the need for overpopulation and to stimulate the greed to devour what has been out there for a billion years and to burn petroleum in endless and countless flames in the ceremonial vehicles and the machines that change the climate. It is duty to torment the innocent and the less privileged and to finger and torture and tease right out of their homes and lives a million species of brother and sister beings. It is duty to dissolve any signs of an inner life that is different in any way from the outer lies of consumerist propaganda. It is duty to be of only one dimension so that the inside soul is no different. From the commercial for tennis shoes the finances of rock and roll sings anthems of cheap beer straight into your ears as you shove your green paper over the counter to trade for burgers that are fried in the tallow of cows grazed where once there were forests in the amazon The only war that matters is the war against the imagination.
3: Wow. So next up is award-winning poet and translator, Andrew Schelling. He is an ecologist, naturalist, and Zen practitioner. And these currents have influenced his work. Uh, He has translated numerous works. Amongst these poetry collections are the books, Old Growth, Tea Shack Interior, Old Tail Road, and A Possible Bag, amongst others. Uh, Please welcome Andrew Schelling. Welcome.
13: Thank you. Well, let's see, I first um, saw Michael read poetry in about 1976 or 77. I was living in Santa Cruz and there was a uh, poetry festival there and, Uh, When it was Michael's turn to read, he stepped up to the microphone in a black kind of blazer and a black tie, thin black tie, looking incredibly elegant, and recited from memory the opening passage of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. I know some of you have probably heard this, and I'd never heard anything like this. I had certainly read that page before, but I had never heard it recited like it was a living poem. It went something like this. When that Apriel with his shores salta, the draught of March hath pierced to the rota, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which thereto too engendered is the floor. When Zephyrus eke with his sweeter breath, Inspired hath in every holt and heath the tender crops, and the youngest sonna hath in the ram his half a coarse irana, and smaller fowls make a melody that's sleeping all the night with open ye. Well, that really excited me. I mean, one thing that happened there, I felt, you know, for the first time in my life, it was as though. I heard the entire history of the language that I speak, or 600 years of it, collapsed into a single passage of poetry, and it was really Michael's voice that had done it with such, you know, power and elegance, you know, so very quickly I went out and picked up his volume, Ghost Tantras, which I'd... um, you know, first encountered one of, I think, in Jerry Rothenberg's anthology, America Prophecy, and began to recite these aloud to myself, suddenly now hearing not just six or seven hundred years of English language poetry, but many millions of years of mammal species poetry (laughs) being recited. I didn't get to meet Michael and, and, you know, got to know him and Amy um, much later, I think in the early 1990s, after I had moved to Colorado and was at then the Naropa Institute, and Michael and Amy were frequent visitors, and I would see them there, and then also when I went to the Bay Area regularly, um, we'd often get together, have a meal or something, and I got to know them fairly well, well enough that when my daughter went to college in Oakland for a year. It wasn't as though Amy and Michael hovered over her or anything, but she was a kind of emblematic parental figure for my daughter, which really helped her get through a difficult year in the East Bay. But, you know, it was really, um, I still think of Michael's book, Ghost Tantras, as one of the finest and most important books of, for me anyhow, but I think for the 20th century in general. And by the time I knew Michael, it had been out of print for a long time. You know, that wonderful small black and white volume with the, um, you know, great beast on the cover. I'd often press Michael to um, get it back into print. And Uh, I think he was pleased, but he never seemed to know quite how to proceed with that. And I I approached a couple of publishers, Peter Turner at Shambhala Publications, J.B. Bryan at La Alameda Press, trying to insist that this would be such an important thing to bring this book back into print, and they didn't really get it, I think. It must have been... um, after City Lights decided to bring it back into press, I was having another conversation with Michael about the book and he said, what do you think of the Wally Berman photo of me on the cover? And I said, that's you? I'd never realized that that was Michael on the cover there. All I could see was the hair and the the mane around it. And he said, it took him two days to um, make me up like that. I had not much response to that except to say, well, he sure made you look like a lion. And Michael said, I think I look like a marmot. Um, I'm gonna read just a couple of these um, ghost tantras Michael already scooped me in that early uh, video we saw, but I'm not going to let that deter me. This is such a beautiful poem that I think hearing it twice is not too much. This is number 51 from the Ghost Tantras. I love to think of the red purple rose in the darkness cooled by the night. We are served by machines making satins of sounds. Each blot of sound is a bud or a star. Body eats bouquets of the ears, vista. Gar, body, ears, nose, eyes, deem thou. No, na, oh, hroor, vorn. na. Garu me na dru search na thee. The machines are too dull when we are lion poems that move and breathe. When we grow on. Han- my Mita, Sharu Shri, the no deemed as one E those. So those ghost tantras really pleased that City Lights saw the reason to bring it back into print. You know, I used to, for for about seven or eight years, I was going every year to teach in India and I would have these terrific young Indian aspiring writers who were so intelligent and full of such remarkable energy and wildness and enthusiasm who had been given, I think, the most limited curriculum in their poetry courses in India and You know, whether this was just a curriculum left behind by the British when the Raj disappeared from India, but, you know, sort of the best poems that I was seeing, you know, they must have read up through Philip Larkin or something, you know, exquisite little filigreed poems with the most minute ambitions, and I realized that it was, um, ghost tantras that these students need needed. And when I got them out of the chairs, they just took to these tantras with extraordinary exhilaration. And after a week or two, they put on a performance. This is in a remote Indian village up in the Himalayan foothills. And like much of remote India, there's only a couple of hours of electricity during the day. So by nighttime, there's no electricity. So the students set up under the Himalayas shadows, a flat piece of ground with torches to light a little performance space with an audience sitting there. And the students carrying candles to read by Ringed the audience set up a perimeter and one by one they'd step forward and read their poems while around the perimeter, the rest of the group kept up a constant, liturgy of ghost tantras moving so that was really one of the more exciting uh, performances i had ever witnessed so i'll read one final one this is ghost tantra 52 one we know here on thee thou thou me deep store Rur in fornuus meet, on graur in silans viola sri shari. Ah, the love to thou, ur rundri poor note, amimur plan, plan. Thori Durthon plun, plun, Thori N Rosh to Three Thrash ha me bresh me thon O methi here down deep over and above thy heart's ache plan, plan, drew, dour referee, where the unspoken voice speaks before the tears drip, thy message might be. And that's got a little subnote written during Schubert's Amadeus Quartet.
3: Thank you, Andrew. It's really great to have you with us today. Our next guest is a poet and interviewer. He is the founder of the Seattle Poetics Lab and the Cascadia Poetry Festival. He has produced hundreds of poetry events and hundreds of hours of interview programming with legendary poets and activists that include Allen Ginsberg, Joanne Keiger, Robin Blazer, Diane DePrima, and of course, Michael McClure himself. Winner of the 2014 Robin Blazer Award from the uh, Capilano Review. He serves as literary executor for the late poet Sam Hamill. He is engaged in 20 years of bioregional cultural investigation of the Cascadia region. So it's really a great honor to have him with us today. Please welcome Paul Nelson.
14: I'm really delighted to be here. Thanks to City Lights. This has been an amazing day and touching day. I'm here, uh, in the ancestral homeland of the duwamish and Mukleshu and other coastal salish tribes so happy mother's day ramadan karim and before i talk about meeting michael i'd just like to do this for a moment In August of 1995, I just started doing public affairs interview programs. I had interviewed Allen Ginsberg in 1994. I didn't know much about poetry, but I was learning fast in the company of people like Allen Ginsberg. And then Michael McClure, this book, this very copy of this book, Three Poems, came to my house on F Street Southeast in Auburn, Washington, with the opportunity to interview Michael. And I didn't really know much about him. But... I looked on the back and saw that he played with Ray Manzarek and I thought, yeah, I'll interview this guy. So I took this book up on my annual backpacking trip in Olympic National Park and went through, the last 13 switchbacks to Appleton Pass are murderous and you go through the beautiful Boulder Creek watershed and I'm reading the introduction, him talking about things like having a hunger for freedom and if poetry and science cannot change one's life, they're meaningless. So he was already speaking to me and I had no idea how this book was going to transform the course of my life, not just my poetry. And I climbed up further about another 300, 400 feet and was overlooking this watershed, this pristine watershed. When I saw the words on the page in Dolphin's skull, one word for each line centered, double-spaced and capitalized. More alive than I ought to be. And I looked out where we had seen bears and other wildlife, this pristine Olympic National Park. And I thought, I think I know what he's talking about. More alive than I ought to be. Oceans and freeways of grief and guilt, triumphs of bare feet and drugs up the nose, Child of cocaine and raccoons in hollow logs, fusus cryptesti fillet. Nature loves to hide herself in Leonardo's secret language and the dimensions that disappeared after the bang. Old men dreaming of great grandfathers are very wise, like sow bugs and wooden spools wound with scarlet thread and an antlered buck that drinks from a bowl in the yard in moon shadows. The sow bug rests in the shadow of a pine cone and red cars cruise by while the world is making itself with my senses. Can this be the beginning of old age? Fear comes in stars of consciousness and now I am somewhere else. The thorns in my finger make stars. The blackberry is sweet and black and red and bitter. Cries of red-tailed hawks are imitated by blue-black jays. Covers of old magazines are glossy, erotic. My sexuality grows underneath them like a rock rolled up on a beach by the edge of huge waves. I'm listening to you in my mind. A museum of dirty pictures. No one is interested but the lion knows as he speaks to the eagle. This is all blackness. This is a cave holding a bowl of beef soup with the leaves and odors of Vietnamese basil. I will not eat baby animals. To chew on their ribs is tasty and revolting. I am spirit, I am a child with you. I am spirit, I am a child with you. And so after he died, I wrote a poem from a series I was doing at the time called Sonetos de Cascadia, these dense prose poems, sonnets. And I started with an epigraph from Michael from his Dharma Devotion number 77. The moment of emotional passion is a flame swirling out of childhood. Elegy from Michael. So moves the last miracle of the mammal patriot out of God's hot prison cell, veins that with liquid humors fuel such fire, Quevedo, and to the far shore, easy to reach when you live life touching the edge, when members of the hummingbird sangha are there to lift the skirt of the veil for you, painless as the last surrender you'd have known for having had contact with the great life force. You, Rebel lion, always in rebellion against one dimensionality shaped by the luminosity of bell rings, the calico cat's tail fur, and the moonlit bowl from which the buck in the yard drinks. You always knew how far it was to the other side, laughing voices of children perfuming the air, your grandson's voice, the last you'd hear after a sip of deathbed Johnny Walker Black, per long-held desire, writes Amy." Miracles blow by, sizeless as clouds and car crashes in Hollywood movies, you say. Still hating Vietnam bomber planes passing over because you knew the power and life force of every sentient thing. The mouse who taught projective verse, the garbage man who plays jazz with his truck. Long live Michael. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Paul. That was really beautiful. Very touching. Our next guest is the celebrated poet, essayist, translator, and publisher Lynn Heginian. She is well known for association with the language poets and for her landmark work My Life, published by Sun and Moon Press. She is the author of dozens of books, which include The Book of a Thousand Eyes, The Language of Inquiry, The Beginner, Saga Circus, as well as many, many others. She teaches Poetics and Contemporary Literature at the University of California at Berkeley. It was really such a great honor to have you with us today.
15: Thank you. It's an honor to have been invited to participate in this. It's a beautiful occasion, a beautiful event. Thank you all for everything you are contributing to it, including the many of you who are silently here, but verbally present in the chat line, which constantly is scrolling to the right of my screen. Many of the ancient Greek philosophers and Homer before them understood something they called in Greek, phren, or more often in the plural, phrenes, which could be translated mostly inaccurately as mind or even soul. But the term also refers to their place in the body, in the midriff, chest, breast, lungs, heart, viscera, where they, states of mind or soul or energy, life forces, passions are imagined to be situated. Thus at one point, a character in the Iliad says, quote, I delight my friend with grief, end quote. Or again, in the Odyssey, Telemachus gets a sign from Athena She, having been disguised as a man chatting with Telemachus has suddenly turned into a bird and flies into the air, which Telemachus, quote, recognized with his phrenes and wondered at it in his spirit, end quote. As Homer and many of the pre-Socratic philosophers, including Empedocles, understood it, the body contains multiple sites of thinking, feeling, and feeling thinking. One translator of Empedocles, somewhat delightfully translates phrenes as thought organs. The poet to whom we are paying tribute here is a poet who belongs to the pantheon that includes the ancient Greek heroes whose thought organs abounded with love, sensation, power, passion, ferocity and understanding. And that, of course, is the magnificent Michael McClure. The poem of his that I want to read to the lovers is from a little book called Little Odes and the Raptors. I don't know if you can see it, published in 1963 by Black Sparrow Press. So let me read that poem and then I have a few more remarks to make. To the lovers, and I cannot even begin to imitate Michael, and so I won't try. The dividers of space, the great lovers, are ever about us. The huge bulks of their physical bodies are real. Their great warm bulks fill the air. Their sensual bodies are omnipresent. The waves of their pleasures continue forever, sleek ripplings of natural flesh. Blake and Dante, place them in whirlwinds of hell, but I feel their buttocks and backs and ripplings of pleasure about me. At moments of awareness, I feel their projections. Oh, the pleasure, the pleasure of great natural lovers, vast bodies in silence. I cannot understand. Mozart is real as a feather. And great lovers, as real as his spirit. The sexual, genital, physical pleasure of lovers is real. Their body cave joined to moist cave and writhing and tossing define their exactness. The lovers about us of all times, mindless pounding on mindlessness with only the knowledge of gift, receipt and pleasure, the delicacy of their love. Damn the obscurity of words and the saints of art. Damn the preconception of poem and stanza, but not poem. The great lovers are ever about us. The salmon is a swan in the cold black water and woman is a swan in her dark meat science the mammal of venom and warmth with white feet. Give love to her breasts and draw sleep. The great lovers are ever about us, swathed in long pleasures and hair and poundings of hearts. When I first read that poem years ago, I'd already read Michael's 1963 book, Meet Science Essays and I'd read Dark Brown from 1961 and Love Lion Book and Freewheelin' Frank. I read them without daring to think that I'd one day meet their author, much less imagining that I'd come to regard him as a comrade, even though I remained intimidated by the magnitude of his being. When I first read to the lovers, I'm sure I did so without understanding much if anything, about meat love, body thought, and total being. I recognize those now at last, and I know them to have suffused Michael McClure's writings, his songs, plays, poems, essays, and his life. Michael wrote of the experiential world he lived, not as a prophet, but as a participant, his freenies open, his spirit abundant. In the fall of 2013, I invited Michael to speak to a class I was teaching. The course was a prerequisite for UC Berkeley English majors and was and still is generically titled, quote, literature in English from the mid 19th century to the present. Uh, that leaves one a lot to choose from. There were 99 students in the class and this particular session was on the beats which I had chosen to include appropriately, and in the body of literature in English from the mid-19th century to the present. I think I'm a pretty good teacher. Students say so on their course evaluations. But I've never held 99 students in a windowless room in the mid-afternoon spellbound, nor in any room at any hour. In that particular class, Michael talked about his day job during the period he was writing the ghost Tantra poems. He talked about San Francisco, its streets and sounds and smells. Then he talked to the students about the San Francisco Zoo and its lions. He opened ghost Tantras and read one of the poems. No, as we know, he roared the poem. When he finished the poem, the room was absolutely silent. No one moved. It was 4 p.m class was over, I said so. And the students as one uttered a great groan. And then one voice shouted out, I don't want this ever to end. Michael McClure experienced dark periods, I'm sure. He had the courage for that. He was also a person with a capacity for the heights and reaches of ecstasy, and an ability not just to acknowledge, but to experience otherness, to think as a worm, a pine, a storm, to be lion. May he now rest in peace and may he forever roar in paradise. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for that. That was really so beautiful. Next up is longtime friend of Michael's going back to his Los Angeles days. We are happy and honored to have with us actor of stage, screen and television. appearing in everything from Cecil B. DeMille films to a starring role in David Lynch's Twin Peaks and beyond. He is someone who is a key part of that mid-century LA art and literature scene that included people like Wallace Berman, Dennis Hopper, George Herms, and others. Please welcome Russ Hamblin.
16: Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm I'm certainly proud to be a part of this. And first of all, I'd like to give a, 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 a shout out to Jane McClure and uh, Joanna McClure, who I haven't seen in, in so many years. Of course, I mean, Amy, we've we've been together so much and spent so much time. You know, I've, I gotta tell you, I've written, I have pages and pages and pages on here of what I've been writing the last few days uh, to what I was gonna say and I'm throwing it all out. <laughs> I have decided just to speak from the heart and uh, and tell you how I feel. I've been friends with Michael for over 50 years. Even before that, I was a big fan of his. When I was in the army, I, I, um, I had like two months left and I had one of those months, I had to take a 30 day leave and go on a tour for a movie that I made called Tom Thumb. And um, that's when, uh, during that that one of the cities that we visited, uh, that I visited was San Francisco, and I, I of course had heard of of Howell of, Howl, of uh, Allen Ginsberg's poem, and I wanted to get a copy of it. So I, when I got to San Francisco to do my PR for Tom Thumb, I uh, when I checked into the hotel, I immediately took a taxi and went to City Lights, and that's when I got Alan's book of Howell. I knew that was the place I could buy it. And I also got several other books of of poetry from uh, Lamentia and uh, William Carlos Williams. And and there was one particular poem that I got that just blew me away. And that was a poem by Michael McClure. And uh, it was, I if I can remember now it was um, it was the poem about the drug and I suddenly have drawn a blank on it peyote poem it was the peyote poem I got that and I bought that and I took it back to the army with me and uh, I just thought that it was incredible that somebody could write uh, write about that that drug and write in such a a, a beautiful uh, a beautiful way it wasn't until years later that uh, when I moved back when I got out of the army and went back to uh, Los Angeles and became uh, and Wallace Berman became my mentor really and uh, he's the one that that turned me on to to so much contemporary art I was kind of late in coming back into the scene but I did and Michael was certainly one of the ones that influenced me a, a tremendous uh, amount. I even read one of his poems. I read one of the Gar poems, thanks to Andrew, who talks so much about uh, the uh, ghost tantras. And I read one of the, uh, the ghost tantras, which you might get a kick out of. I read it up at a place here called the Ojai Foundation. And uh, my wife belongs to that. And I think we went up for a, a wedding. And, and, and I read that poem. In the outdoors, and I was yelling it out, and I yelled it out. All of a sudden, coyotes started to howl, <laughs> and I just thought that was uh, amazing. It's not quite like lions, but it was—it uh, was—it uh, was coyotes. I just—I just loved uh, uh, Michael. He was a, a huge influence on my uh, on my artistic, creative life. I had spent so many years doing movies and in the performing arts, it wasn't really until I got into the uh, fine arts that I, uh, I really began to appreciate uh, Michael. And in fact, one of the things that happened was uh, when Michael did the play, The Beard, uh, and, and it was in San Francisco and uh, huge, and it had a lot of controversy and you know, all the police Uh, stuff that went on but when he decided to do it in Los Angeles he he asked I remember that he asked Dennis Hopper to to play Billy the Kid and of course you all know that 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 was about Billy the Kid and Gene Harlow in Heaven and 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 Dennis was going to do it but he backed out at the last minute because he got a little movie to make he finally got the money for it to make called Easy Rider and he made that with uh with Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda, so Michael came to Pacific Palisades where I was living, and he asked me if I would, if I would play uh, Billy the Kid, and I told him I'm sorry, Michael, no, because uh, I, I I was totally focused on art and on, on on doing collages and paintings and making eight millimeter films, so I talked him out of me anymore about doing it. And uh, then he asked me and he said, Do you happen to know uh, Tuesday Weld? And I said, Yes, as a matter of fact, I, I worked with her uh, on a project and and dated her too uh, for a while. I, I said, I, you know, I know where she lives, but I don't have her phone number anymore. And uh, Michael said, Is there any way we could get in touch with her? And I said, Yeah, so we ended up getting on, on my motorcycle. And uh, Michael sat on the back, and this is when he was still drinking. And we drove down Pacific Coast Highway and stopped at about every bar we could find until we got to, to uh, Malibu. And I, I knew where she lived. And so I, uh, I knocked on her door several times and she didn't answer. And uh, finally, I went around back and I knew, I knew where her bedroom was. <laughs> so I yelled up and I said, Tuesday, Tuesday. And she finally came to the window and I said, Tuesday, this is, uh, I introduced her to Michael McClure. And I I said, uh, Michael's uh, a great poet and great playwright. And he, uh, he's written this play called The Beard and he wants you to play Jean uh, Harlow. And she said, no, thanks, and shut the window. It was like really fast. And Michael and I looked at each other and said, well, forget it. Let's head back. So we just went back and stopped at every bar again, getting, getting back. That's when he was drinking. Of course, he stopped after that. Bonnie and I have spent so much time with Amy that we just love so dearly. And I, I was going to read something else from, from his book. But I, I decided instead, just while we were going on here, I wanted to read you a poem that that I thought that I wrote. Then I didn't write that many. I was mainly a visual artist, so I did all visual kind of of collages and paintings and stuff. But Michael was certainly an influence for me writing this uh, this uh, poem that I would like to uh, uh, close with and. Uh, It's, I'm stopping right where I am, no going forward or backward, no more heights or depths, watching opposites sneer at each other. I'm stopping right where I am, no more shrinking or growing, no more tunis, no more going, no more stopping. I'm stopped, opening, blossoming, dying. That's it. Thank you so much for inviting me.
3: Thank you for being with us, Russ. That was fabulous. And also I'd like to let everyone know, you know, Amber Tamblyn is gonna be on the East Coast Michael Tribute. So check that out next weekend. So we are winding this down, alas, but it's really been incredible. we have one more speaker, after which uh, we're going to give Michael the last word. So coming up now is final speaker, Michael's wife and partner of many years, the sculptor Amy McClure.
17: Okay. Thank you to everyone. Special thanks to Elaine, to Garrett, to Peter, to Lawrence, to Stacy for that entire ensemble that we call City Lights, to Nancy, for this new book of Michael's and for a family away from home that we call City Lights. Thanks again to everyone, the many, many, many friends and colleagues and neighbors and family who've been an incredible support Michael and I the last year of his life. And in this last year where I've been, as Shepard Powell who lost his Diane in October said, we are both finding our ways in the terra incognita of life physically apart from the beloved. But I think today proves that it's just a physical separation. The last day of Michael's life He had, as Russ said, been too much of a drinker, and as his daughter Jane has said that, and as dear Joanna didn't bother to mention, but I'm sure she put up with a lot. He always said on the last day he really wanted to try Johnny Walker Black Label Scotch, because it was a new Scotch and he hadn't tried it. He he said, that's my dying wish, and he'd been saying it for years. So he has a very dear friend, a novelist named Juvenal Acosta, who came over on his last day with a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label. Michael had his, had his wish. He also heard his last poem in this lifetime, which Juvenal read to him. This is a poem that's 400 years old by the poet Francisco de Quevedo, written probably around 1620. Love constant beyond death. That terminal shadow may with darkness seal my eyes shut when it steals white day from me. And in an instant, flattering the zeal of this, my eager soul, let it go free. But on this hither shore where once it burned, it shall not leave behind love's memory My flame can swim chill waters, it has learned to lose respect for law's severity. This soul that was a god's hot prison cell, veins that with liquid humors fueled such fire, marrows that flamed in glory as I strove, shall quit the flesh, but never their desire, they shall be ash that ash will feel as well. Dust they shall be, that dust will be in love. My deep gratitude to Michael McClure for never being boring, not even for a moment. Deep gratitude for your genius, your wit, your generosity, your curiosity, your tolerance, your humor, your myriad-mindedness, your depth and breadth of insight, thought, and art, your art, the poetry, the plays, the prose, the painting, your love of all the arts, your support in all ways, always, your anger, which often moved you and others into right action your compassion your love for all beings your mammal your unshakable love for your family for friends for neighbors and all sentient beings and for our love drenched dyad thank you for our timeless endless time together I'm going to read a little bit of Michael's prose, not his poetry, but its prose about the poetry. From Plumstones, Cartoons of No Heaven, published by the wonderful poet Leslie Scalapino. The poems are like the energy of consciousness moving vertically on a scroll. Look at them as you would look at calligraphy. They are as much for the eye as for the voice. If the type and placement of lines seems strange, read them aloud and they will take their shape. Capitalized lines are not intended to be read louder. Single letter lines gliding down the page move normally as breath does. From Rebel Lions, poetry is a muscular principle and it comes from the body. It is the action of the senses of what is heard, seen, tasted, touched, and smelled as well as what is imagined and reasoned. It is the voices athletic action on the page and in the world. Poetry is one of the edges of consciousness and consciousness is a real thing like the hoof of a deer or the smell of a bush of blackberries at the roadside in the sun. From Mysteriosos. Mysteriosos and other poems are remembrances, discoveries, experiences and imaginings. In writing them, I become open to unexpected shifts to slipping through time and to moving through once closed moments. Our unending war against nature is the crisis from which I write. My poetry demands the tearing down of what we are and letting our energies and bodies of meat and nothingness rebuild themselves. We human mammals hate and love that we are gorgeously out of control and also so compressed into distracted and pain social shapes. But there is alchemy. And long ago Friedrich Schlegel said, all poetry should become science and all science become art, poetry and philosophy should be made one. A poem is a porthole of consciousness and experience, whether opening to the feeling of blood pulsing in the wrist, or the taste of a red black cherry, or the sound of a rock being placed on the table. From simple eyes, A quote from Shelley, poetry is a mirror which would make beautiful that which is distorted. And from Michael's introduction, whether one thinks of Blake or of Artaud who uses his psychosis as an instrument to explore the realms, or Su Dong Po who saw his body as a ship upon the river, true poetry is always art. Poetry is not conventional social literature, it is the discovery of the materiality of consciousness, whether in the sound of a car starting, the tension of a shoulder muscle, or the floating of an owl feather in a breeze. From Mephisto's, experiences may be so tiny, so without scale or proportion that they would not exist without a fringe which flits like the blue-gray wing of a moth or like a coyote leaping across the highway in front of my speeding car and into the beach dune. And from Persian Pony, once this was all black plasma and imagination. This book is for the protection of all beings with deep heart's love for Amy, James, Jane, Bill, Michael. And then a quote from Walt Whitman, a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Gary Snyder couldn't be here today. The photographer Christopher Felver came over the other day and handed me this. In Michael's new book from City Lights, Mule we'll Kick Blues, there is a poem for Gary Snyder that I would like to end with. The title of the poem is taken from Dogen in the year 1254. Make the present moment the true source for Gary Snyder. On the drain board, black ants circle a bubble of honey bending into the mirroring feast with antennae taut in the swallowing. I remember zebras and wildebeest at the waterhole in the edge of the spotlight, and the elephant tramps in on padded feet, flailing red dust from her whooshing trunk. The noise melts with silence, reflecting the braiding of the white silver stream in the waterfall pouring over rocks and concrete just down the street in the glen. On the slope under morning stars, I walk ahead of the ripples traveling in crescent sheets and I stop to see them pass me. Bird calls flood from everywhere to celebrate the end of the rain. I am a seal sloshing from realm to realm in the string theory, in the mutual arising, in the imagination of youthful muscles and wild surf. I howl like a coyote dreaming a future in silences between raindrops. Thank you all. Thank you, Peter.
3: Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, This has been such an amazing afternoon. There is one more tribute left. It's the East Coast Tribute. It's next weekend. You can register through the City Lights website. Of course, all of Michael's books are available on our City Lights website. We've also posted links if you're interested. And uh, it seems only fitting that we end with the words of Michael. And so now I will give you one last video.
2: Smash
1: the state your soul is in. Grow teeth, breathe deep. Cast away your TV burgers and your mental motel sleep. Sink your spirit toes as roots in stars and spaces. Watch out. Brain damage, lies, and big biting Jaws in the smog of information will bite your ass and skull off. Eyes and earbrows are your wings.
0: Listening to live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com/events.